John chapter 1 still, answering this question of who is Jesus? You're like, I thought we were done with the Gospels. We were, but there's just one chapter that just keeps hanging on, um, and I can't let go of it. How many of you are confident that you have a pretty good handle on who Jesus is according to John? All right. It's like, I'm kind of hesitant to raise my hand because I don't know what I might get blindsided with. I don't want to sound arrogant. I don't, there's more, always more to know. Um, have you at least learned something new? Um, and that's my hope, is that you'll continue to learn and explore more about who Jesus is. I think we've uncovered a lot. Um, every time I come back to chapter one, there seems to be this next layer to just kind of peel back and discover. Uh, there's so much packed in these first 18 verses. It's just awesome. I mean, you could spend the rest of this year just reading and studying and meditating on 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and probably still not get everything that's in there. So with that being said, we're going to try to cover every other truth there is in those 18 verses in 30 minutes or less. Not quite, but we are going to try to cover at least one more this morning. Uh, so why don't we start by reading our passage together. Actually, I'm going to read it. I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to read it uh, from my Bible here. And if you have your Bible or your app, go ahead and turn there. Um, it's 18 verses we're going to read together. First John, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Well, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John testified concerning him and exclaimed, the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, Yet the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. So, one of the things I like to do when I come to a passage like this, where there's so much in there, is I like to make a list of things that don't seem to quite connect with my way of thinking. Maybe I just struggle with the wording of it. Maybe I, just, I read it and it just sounds alien to me. You ever read a scripture passage and it's like, what, were they, what was that author thinking? What were they saying? Have, have you ever read scripture and thought that before? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the book of Hebrews. I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with this. Sometimes you just read something and you're like, I got to read that again. And then you read it again and you're like, I got to read it again because I still don't get it. I mean, it's a reality, isn't it, sometimes with God's Word? So I like to make a list of either a paragraph or a verse or a phrase or a word that I'm kind of stumbling on and not really sure about and then come back to that later on to try to understand it um, in light of, first of all, the context of the book that it's in, and then in the context of the rest of Scripture. So just reading through chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, I'm curious, are there any words or phrases or verses that you notice that it's like, yeah, I don't quite get that? Anybody have any in there? Or it's like, I wish I knew a little bit more about that. Or you guys got all this down? Does anybody have any of them? Yes? What? Yeah, in the beginning was the word. Yeah. That's a, that's a really tough one to kind of get to make sense, isn't it? Right. Awesome. Okay, good. That's one of them for sure. Anybody have any other ones? I'm not going to try to answer everybody's. That wasn't the point of the, of the question here. I just want to know what ones you guys struggle with or, or challenges. Anybody else? No? Yeah, the whole Trinity concept in the first five verses. I'm repeating it so that everybody can hear it, but also for, for the online as well, that, the whole Trinity thing. And then you get to verse 18, and it still even gets confusing there because he himself is God, but he's seated next to the Father. So you have he is God, but he's next to, so you have more Trinity stuff going on there as well. All right, the Trinity, yeah. If anybody, if anybody ever comes up to you and says, I can explain to you the Trinity so that you'll never question it again, just run away. Just run away, okay? Because we can try, but there's still things we're never going to comprehend because that is just beyond anything that's been totally revealed to us. I think there's a lot that we can know about the Trinity, but we'll never know all of it um, and all the ways that, it, that the Trinity works together. So any, any others? No? All right. For me, one of the challenges, that I, a verse, set of verses that I've read over and over again and you read them, and you just, I ended up just like skimming over them. Like you read them, and you're like, oh, okay. And then you go back, and you're like, wait, wait a minute, what did I just read? It's actually verses 16 and 17. This is one of those ones that, that I just struggle with. Um, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And these, these verses have challenged me, and as a result, you get to experience what I've been trying to learn about these verses, because that's what happens when you're, when you're the one doing the speaking. You get to share what you've been wrestling through and, and struggling with. I want to encourage you, though, if you've been wrestling through parts of this chapter, to continue to study it. And it doesn't mean you'll get it all. And I promise you, if you study it now and then you come back to it a year from now, there'll still be something else you'll be trying to, to get a hold of or something, some new insight that you'll have. You'll be like, oh, that little piece connects, but I still have these that I'm not quite sure about. 
Um, that's awesome about God's word, the way that that works. But this set of verses, 16 and 17, have really been one of those set of verses that have, I've struggled with. Um, the phrase grace upon grace, what does that mean? Lots of grace, right? It's a, it just means a, a heap, a whole heap of grace, right? Is that, so we've received a whole heap of grace. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I read it at first. Um, but then all of a sudden, right afterwards, he's throwing in this thing about the law. And then he's throwing in Jesus. And then he defines Jesus as full of grace and truth. Like, why is truth in there? We were just talking about grace, but where does it, he hasn't been talking about truth in the whole rest of the chapter up to this point, necessarily. He's been talking about the word and about light, and now all of a sudden he throws in the word truth. It's like, why is that in there all of a sudden? So I come to a verse like this, and it really kind of makes me wrestle with it a little bit. Um, this is one of those ones where the translators are split on how to interpret this phrase, grace upon grace. In most of your modern translations, you will read grace upon grace. How many of you have that in your Bibles? Grace upon grace. However, some believe it should be translated grace in place of grace. And you're like, what? What do you mean grace in place of grace? And then, of course, the question is, well, what's the big deal and does it really make a, a difference, right? Um, so here's, here's the two different ways to look at it. There's grace upon grace. Grace upon grace is additive. You add grace to grace, and you're compounding grace on top of grace on top of grace. Grace in place of grace is subtractive. One grace is replacing the other. There's a big difference between those two thoughts in this grace upon grace challenge. Well, why is there even a challenge here? Because the Greek phrase is this. And that word in the middle is the word anti in which we get our English word anti or anti, which means opposed to or in opposition of or against or in place of. It's found 68 times in the New Testament. This is the only one where the translators have chosen to put the word upon in it even though that's not typically where it would be used and hasn't been used in any other literature of its day as the word upon. So you're like, okay, here's where it's used. Here's, let me give an example of where it's used in the scripture. Luke 11, 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? The word instead, ante. It's not, if they ask you for a fish, wouldn't you give him a snake and a fish? A snake on top of a fish? That would be upon. It wouldn't make sense because the word anti means instead of or in place of. So we have this challenge where our modern translators have taken this word anti, which means opposed to or opposite of, and have translated into upon, which is a compounding. And yet everywhere else where they've taken this word anti in the 67 other trans, uh, places in the New Testament, they've translated it as instead of or in place of. But our translators don't translate it that way. So this is one of those things that it comes up in my head, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. Some of you are like, okay, you already lost me. How many of you think like, stuff like this is, is fun or challenging? All right, so there's three of you that are going to really get a lot out of this message. It's awesome. The rest of you, I guess we'll just have to, to work through it. 
The reality is that both of them can make sense theologically. However, one makes more sense grammatically. Okay? Both of them make sense theologically, but one of them makes sense grammatically. And the one that makes sense grammatically is not the one that our translators have put in our scriptures um, as the, the way that, to grammatically um, interpret that. So I want to look at these two things through the scripture. The first one I want to look up at is grace upon grace. What is grace upon grace? This compounding grace of God. It's evident all throughout scripture, really. The grace of God covered the sins of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He said, if you eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. They eat of the tree. God goes searching for them, gives them a chance to confess what they've done. And after they say that they've eaten the fruit, rather than killing them there, which he had the right to do, instead, he chose to initiate the first animal sacrifice, regardless of what Peter writes in their version of Genesis. He clothed them with animal skins. He removed them from the garden, lest they eat from the tree of, of life as well. But that was grace. And then their son, Cain, kills his brother Abel after being warned not to do it. And God, instead of taking Cain's life, banishes him and even chooses to protect him. I would call that grace and grace upon grace. Then God wipes out mankind, sees what he does, and says, I'll never do that again, even though the heart of man is continually evil all the time. In other words, mankind's not going to change, but I'm going to choose not to wipe them out again. That would be grace. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Israel goes into Egypt to flee a famine because God protected them through Joseph and Pharaoh, they end up in slavery. And God redeems Israel from slavery and not only redeems them, but lets them come out of slavery, looting their enemy and being prosperous and leads them into a promised land. Again, and they didn't even really know who Yahweh was because they had been over 400 years without a way to know Yahweh. All of these are examples of God's grace. And each one kind of builds on the previous grace that was given. And all of those took place prior to the law being given. Right? The book of Exodus is where we meet God in Mount Sinai. Um, we find Moses talking with Yahweh, receiving the law. And even while Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, the Ten Commandments from God, what are the people doing? you remember? What's that? Yeah, they're making a golden calf and they're having this big party at the bottom of the mountain. They've totally turned their back on God, and they've fashioned this calf. And the person responsible for fashioning the calf is Aaron, who is the new high priest appointed by God, the one who's supposed to point people to God. So Moses is up on the mountain having this experience with God, and the people are just totally, totally neglecting the covenant they just made with God. Right? So Moses comes down the mountain. He gets so mad, he throws the tablets and he breaks them. And then eventually he has a conversation with God about this, and it's like, all right, God tells him, get some tablets, meet me up at the mountain again, and we'll, we'll, we'll redo the tablets. As Moses gets ready to go back up the mountain the second time, he asks God for something unique. He said, God, let me see your glory. 
And I want you to realize that John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, have mentioned the law, the Moses, Moses and glory. You have to re realize that we're hyperlinking in John back to these moments on purpose. And in Exodus 34, verses 4 through 7, we read this. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He started early in the morning. He went up on to Mount Sinai, as Yahweh had commanded him. He took in his hand the two stone tablets, and Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of Yahweh, and Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, he does not, and he does not leave utterly unpunished, punishing the guilt of the fathers on sons and on the sons of sons in the third and fourth generations. So as Moses is up on the mountain, God appears to him, and he's able to see a glimpse of God's glory. And notice how Yahweh describes himself. He describes himself as being full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth. The word uh, truth is one that is ascribed to Jesus, obviously. Well, God gave the law a second time, and he kept Aaron in his position of, as high priest. That would certainly be more grace compounded, right? Um, God led the people into the promised land even after they failed to keep their covenant, and he conquered their enemies before them. And even when they rebelled, um, God's grace was compounded when he punished them, but also kept a remnant to show his faithfulness and his promises too. So all throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of Genesis up to the, the founding of the nation of Israel, all the way through the history of Israel through the Old Testament, we see grace upon grace upon grace, the character of God being a gracious God, showing grace time and time again when people have failed to keep their end of the bargain, and God continues to show favor and to do kindness toward them. Then when we get to the New Testament, for Yahweh to send his son, the one and only from the Father, to die for the sins of mankind is truly grace upon grace. In his grace, he's slow to anger, and in an even greater show of grace, he provides forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption, which is just mind-blowing. Certainly the scripture is clear about compounding nature of God's grace, and the evidence is so clear that most translators have taken John 1:16 as grace upon grace to demonstrate this compounding nature. So what about this idea of grace in place of grace? What about that? What do we do with it? If we take the, the meaning of anti to mean instead of or in place of, would this now be contrary to other scripture? Grace in place of grace is the idea that there's a new grace or a different grace that supersedes the old grace. So in a very real way, it replaces a new grace that replaces an old grace. 
is that something that we find in the scriptures? In the context of John's gospel, I think it's a very fitting understanding of it. Um, let's read these verses again, and I'm going to translate it instead of grace upon grace, it's, we're going to translate it in place of. So, indeed, we have all received grace in place of grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a continuation um, from 16 and 17. There's a parallelism from 16 and 17. You have a grace and a second grace, and you have the law and you have Jesus. And they're meant to map on each other. One grace is connecting us to the law. One grace is connecting us to Jesus. Okay? So the first one is the grace of the law. We should look at that first. Uh, so the, in this grace in place of grace, let's, let's talk about the law. The law could not provide salvation. Okay, the scriptures teach that. It did allow the Israelites to have God among them. And certainly that was an act of grace. While we often think of the law as, uh, as Paul refers to it, as that schoolmaster, as that, that thing that, that shows you how bad you are, it's also a tremendous act of grace. The law was provided so that God's presence could be among his people, so that God could dwell among men. It was made, the law was presented so that the Israelites could present offerings and sacrifices to God for the things that they've done wrong so that they could enjoy the presence of God among them, so that God could coexist in their midst. And when he did coexist with them, even then it was a, a partial existence, right? He was, he was there, but his presence was shrouded. He appeared in a cloud of glory. So you have this idea of, of radiance, of a radiant cloud. <laughs> so you have a, his, his glory being masked some because people could not handle the full glory of God in their midst. He would not meet with them face to face, but he was among them in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple. Immediately after the, temple was, after the tabernacle was built, God's glory took up residence. We read about this in, in Exodus, Exodus 40, 34, and 35. It says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So, at the end of God giving the commands for the tabernacle and the tabernacle being built, God's glory filled it, and Moses is standing where? Outside of it. He was not able to enter because God's glory was there. Okay, so there was the command for the tabernacle. God's glory fills the tabernacle. Moses cannot enter. After the book of Exodus, what comes next? Leviticus. Leviticus is all about laws, right? The Levitical laws. They're the, the sacrifices that you make, all the things that you have to do. What do you do if somebody's unclean? What do you do if somebody has this issue or that issue? And all of these laws were meant to purify Israel so that God's presence could remain among them and so that they could interact with God. You get past Leviticus in the Torah, and what's the next book? What is it? Numbers, right? Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, the second law. So we left the end of Exodus with God's glory filling the tabernacle and Moses outside the tabernacle. You then have the book of Leviticus with the law. You come to the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1, and you read this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the second month, on the second year after Israel's departure 
from the land of Egypt. Where's Moses now? In the tent of meeting with Yahweh. What changed from the end of Exodus to the beginning of Numbers is the giving of the law to purify so that they could be among God's presence and remain in God's presence. The law allowed the presence of God to be among the people. And I should say this, the people's faithfulness to the law um, is what permitted that. It allowed the priests to be near Yahweh. And the high priest, once a year, once a year the high priest would make a special offering for the sins of the people and then for himself, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies once a year where he could be in God's presence. Where the Ark of the Covenant was and the mercy seat. And actually go into the very presence of God, one man, once a year. And they would put bells on his robe and they would tie a rope to his ankle because if there was any sin in his life and God, or if God was displeased with him, they expected him to drop dead inside the, the um, tabernacle, inside the Holy of Holies, and nobody was going in to get him because they knew it was their life on the line then too. So they would literally drag him out by the rope from the ankle. That's scary, but that's how close. That's what it took for them to have the very presence of God among them was the law and the keeping of the law to purify them from sin over and over every year so that God, they could remain in the presence of God. The law was a gift of grace because it provided a way for God to be among mankind. Though it was not like it was in the beginning in Genesis, and it's not like it will be in the end in Revelation like we've looked at over the last couple weeks in the new creation. So that's the grace of the law. It provided a connection, a way for the people of God to be next to God, or at least in proximity of God. Matter of fact, even when you look through the encampment in the wilderness, you'll see you have tribes to the north, to the south, to the east and the west, and the tabernacle right in the middle. It was about having God in their midst, and the law helped provide that. It was grace. So what about the grace of Jesus in this grace in place of grace? If we're talking about one grace replacing another, the first grace would be the law. And then when Christ came, there's a second grace that supersedes or overwrites or replaces the first grace, the grace of Jesus. Because of Jesus, the presence of God was physically among mankind and walked among men. He took on flesh and he dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. There is imagery here that's meant for us to understand. This is far beyond anything that they experienced in the wilderness in the, with the tabernacle. This wasn't the presence of God hidden in a shroud behind a cloud. This was God in the flesh among humans, tabernacling, living, dwelling among mankind. That is a much greater grace. Much greater grace. Let's read this again, and we're going to add verse 18 onto verses 16 and 17, because that's part of the context of these verses that help us to understand this. Indeed, we have all received grace in place of grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's right side, the Father's side, excuse me, has revealed him to us. Do you see that? We've gone from not even seeing God 
because he's been shrouded, because we can't see the very presence of God, to now through Jesus, we have seen the Father in the flesh among humans. He dwelt among us. The grace of the law was replaced in this case with the grace of Jesus. The first grace, the law, provided a way for God's presence to remain among the people, though shrouded. The second grace brought the presence of God in the flesh to mankind. The second grace replaces the first grace. So then what do you do with verses like this one? I, um, Matthew 5, 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I think the key here is in that phrase, fulfill. The law was temporary. The law was temporary. The work of Jesus was permanent. When you read John 1, 16, we have received grace upon grace or grace in place of grace from his fullness. What is that fullness? You read that sentence and you're like, well, what does it mean from his fullness? Another one of those phrases that kind of catches you. We have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, meaning that Jesus was the fulfillment of something. Jesus was the fullness of something. It's the law and also it's God's time in the fullness of time. We'll see that in just a second here. The word fullness means something that is complete. Something that is complete. So I'm going to take us through some more scriptures. You ready? Hebrews 10, 1 through 10. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of the sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And after he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifice and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law, he then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Did you catch? He takes away the first to establish the second. One replaces the other. Another passage that shows this grace in place of grace concept um, and the fullness aspect of it is found in Galatians chapter 4. When the time came to completion or to fullness, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit into his son, of his son, excuse me, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then God has made you an heir. When the word completion here means fullness, and it's the same word that's used in John 1.16, 
um, when it talks about grace upon grace from his fullness. When the time was fulfilled, when the time was complete, God sent Jesus to do what the law could not. When the time was right in God's timing, Jesus was sent to do for us what could not be done through the law by sacrificing his only son as a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of mankind. Grace in place of grace. The passage in Galatians also shows the the passing of this law um, and we're redeemed from the law to adoption from one grace to a better grace. There's a something we have to understand in all of this. The old covenant is as much grace as the new. Um, But it's the new covenant that grace is given its ultimate final expression. The old covenant allowed for people to be near God. The new covenant has done it once and for all. The old covenant provided a way for people to be forgiven of their sins so they could remain in God's presence. And they had to do that though over and over and over and over and over again. The new covenant... For those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they receive forgiveness of sins once and for all. It's a final expression. It's a more complete expression of grace. But they're both full of grace. And there's a progression in this prologue, too. Um, It moves from a God who has given something to a God who has come among his people. God gave the law so people could be near him and it progresses to God coming to be among his people in our form. So we can see that there is evidence for both grace upon grace and grace in place of grace in the scriptures. Um, Both translations are warranted, um, and both of them are taught in, in our scriptures. So why does it matter? They both show an aspect of grace, and both are worthy of our reflection and our thanksgiving we are recipients of grace in place of grace we are recipients of the ultimate expression of grace that we don't have to live under the law we live under the law of christ that we are forgiven once and for all if we've accepted christ as our savior we benefit from that grace in place of grace that new grace that replaces the old grace is something that we cling to as christians as followers of jesus But we also have to acknowledge that once we've received that grace, (laughs) we depend upon the grace upon grace on a regular basis. The goodness of God not giving us what we deserve, even when we break our covenant with him the way Israel did in the past. So it deserves both our reflection and our thanksgiving. But there's still one part of verses 16 and 17 that I struggle with a little bit. And that's that phrase that describes Jesus as grace and truth. Two times John uses this phrase, grace and truth. It's another unique Johnism. John has these sayings that he uses that nobody else does, and they only show up in his gospel. This is one. This phrase, grace and truth, referring to Jesus, only shows up in the gospel of John and only in chapter 1, verses 14 and verse 17. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. Now, it seems pretty clear why we would focus on grace, right? We've just covered so much grace here. That makes sense. So why does he throw in this truth? Why does this, where does this fit in? Is this another connection back to the law? It certainly is meant to connect us back to Moses, right? We just read that announcement that Yahweh made when he passed before Moses in Exodus 34. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding with loyal love and faithfulness. Wait a minute. I thought that said truth. Same word. One of your translations will put faithfulness and the other one will put truth in there. Carries the same meaning. Faithfulness, truth. If you read it in the CSB, you'll get truth. Do I have that in both there? No, okay. Not only was Jesus the fulfillment of God's grace, he was the fulfillment of multiple aspects of truth, of faithfulness. Humanity was unable to be faithful to God's law if we want to just go back to the law concept. Jesus came and was faithful to complete all of the requirements of the law. He's the only one who ever did as a human complete all the requirements of the law. So in that aspect, the faithfulness or the truth here could apply to the way that he lived on this earth to complete as a human what you and I could not. The only person ever to do that. But Jesus was not just human, he was also God. So in that aspect, this truth or faithfulness could also refer back to him being part of the Godhead, and it could be referring back to Yahweh, and as God being faithful. It speaks about his deity and being faithful as God, but it also is humanity and being without sin. Uh, the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we, as we are, and yet without sin. He's the only human to go through this life and not sin. He is the only one who's been true and faithful as a human. To declare that Jesus was full of grace and truth is to declare that Jesus was the perfect human and also to declare that he was the image of the Father, which is what John leaves us with at the end of his gospel in, in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has revealed him to us. Yahweh passed before Moses and said, I am the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and full of truth. Jesus is now the man full of grace and truth, and no one has seen the Father, but if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. He is grace and truth because he also is the Father. It's another one of those Trinity passages. It's like your head starts to explode again. So you have two different ways you can look at that, that grace and truth. So as we wrap up this, these thoughts here, um, we're bringing them to a conclusion here. We wrap up our session even in, in John chapter 1. I don't know if David's going to continue in it, but I'm, I'm, I'm done in John chapter 1. This is my last Sunday in it. There's a lot more that we could study. You could look at this passage and you could just study more about the incarnation in the flesh and ask questions like, well, why did he use the word anthropos for mankind, coming to mankind, but then not refer to Jesus as coming as a man, but coming as flesh? 
as meat. Like, why did he choose that word instead of man? And, and, why, and, and that's just another great study. You could go through the theme of seeing in Revelation because you have light and you have vision and we've seen, and there's so much incredible stuff you can look at just from that perspective of John chapter 1. You have Jesus being at, at, the, uh, at the Father's side. You could definitely take some time and study the throne of God and Jesus' place on the throne and the Father's place in the throne, in the divine throne room. We touched on the darkness that the light dispelled and the darkness not overcoming it. You could do a whole study just on how that relates to the physical life that Jesus lived on this earth and his crucifixion. You could also take it back to Genesis and the serpent, and you can also take it all the way throughout the spiritual forces in the heavenly places in the book of Ephesians. I mean, there's so much you could do with that darkness. And of course, you could spend the rest of your life trying to understand the new life we have in Christ because that light was brought life to all of mankind. So what is this life that he has? John 10.10 says that Jesus came that we could have life and have it abundantly. What does that mean? How is it not the prosperity gospel, but how is it an incredibly prosperous life, an abundant life in God's eyes? Those are some of the topics you could try to tackle just from the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. But as we wrap up our message this time in, in this gospel and in chapter 1, I think we've come to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. He's the greatest grace that provides a bridge between God and humans. The law brought people closer to God. Jesus brought God to the dwelling of people, to mankind. The, the prologue of John, which are these 18 verses, they, they kind of show a progression. They show that in the beginning, the word was with God, right? And that's in the past. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so you have this, this past thing that took place where it's kind of distant. God is kind of distant in all that. But then you have, but the light was coming into the world and John was actually declaring that light. So John was saying, listen, there's one coming after me who was, existed before me because the light was coming into the world. So you have something that was in the past. Now, all of a sudden, it's coming to the world. So you have this was coming to the cosmos is the word that's used there. And then in the Gospel of John, you have, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you have the presence of God going from back in creation being very distant from creation to coming to creation, and even through the temple imagery, being close to creation, but not with it 100%, to now the word becoming flesh and living among us, God among mankind. This is one of the, one of the main teachings of John's gospel, was, was that God came to be among men. But the progression doesn't stop there, does it? Because that's still in the past for us. The word was in the beginning, the word was coming, the word came, the word was crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended to the Father, but there's still more to it than that. There's still one more step in this progression. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not 
know, you yourselves not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? There is a greater grace that's provided through Jesus that's beyond just him being among mankind. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, for each of us in this room that have said, Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm going to surrender to that, and I'm going to live my life for him and receive the grace that he's offered, we ourselves become the very dwelling place of God's Spirit. Not just among us, but in us. The ultimate progression of grace upon grace. Or grace in place of grace. is not just that God came to be among humans, but that God would choose then for us to be his vessels to dwell in. I want to leave you with a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you see the grace in place of grace concept in that verse? For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemns sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering, in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. Now the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it's unable to do so. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The grace upon grace, the grace in place of grace, is that God has chosen not only to redeem us, but to indwell us, to allow us to live for him and with him by giving us his spirit. And we have this through our Savior, Jesus Christ. If you belong to God, you have God's spirit, the spirit of Christ in you. You are that tabernacle. You are that temple. And you have experienced the ultimate grace of God, that he would not only be near you and with you, but in you. What an amazing grace. What an amazing gift our Father has given us through Jesus Christ. David, would you come close us in prayer?